welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So this is week four, or part four, I should say, of our series on tyranny. And before we continue with that topic, I want to dive right in to our law of the day. So our law or passage of the day is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So I picked this passage because it will relate to our topic today on on tyranny. But uh, looking at the context here, beginning of chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, uh, the first seven verses talk about paying vows, being slow to speak, uh, doing what you promise to do, being honest, and fearing God, and being sure to honor Him with your lips. So it's all about just honesty, truth, and speech. And then skipping ahead in the same chapter to verses 10 through 20, looks at wealth and how people toil and labor hard to accumulate wealth, and that sometimes people are even hurt by the wealth that they accumulate. They can't even enjoy it because they are just so focused upon it. Now, right in the middle of the passage that we just read, just verses 8 through 9, they speak about the oppression of government. And so essentially what we see here is that man's dishonesty and his quest for wealth you know, this, yeah, that's kind of the bookends of, of this chapter. But those two things together, they do lead to oppression. And so we should not be surprised when we see it. People are striving to accumulate wealth. They don't want to be honest. They're deceitful. And so as a result of really all of this, we should not be surprised when we see oppression uh, in every level of government. That is kind of the default setting, if you will. The, the use of force to um, make others do what you want and to get something from them. So uh, a land full of justice and righteousness are exceptions. They're not the rule. So if you're amazed at what's going on with tyranny and oppression, then we are misunderstanding human nature. We should not be amazed. Scripture even says, do not be amazed. Why? Because of bureaucracy. Officials want to please those who are in higher positions. So everyone is being pressured. The higher official still has a higher one over them, and they are over others beneath them. And so everyone exerts pressure, and they want to please those who are higher and, in a sense, take advantage of those who are lower. And each person is trying to serve himself and his own desires. And so the result is that those at the very bottom the regular people, are the ones who suffer the most. Now that passage ends with the importance of cultivated land, and that's a benefit in every way for a king, a king who's committed to cultivated fields. Why is that important? Well, because even the highest despot, even the person at the tippy top, has to eat. Everyone has to eat. Everyone benefits when the land is cultivated and is productive. It makes the officials look good, you get higher tax revenue, and everyone prospers when the land 
produces its fruit. So a king who's committed to that is going to see benefits at every level. So what would be the application for this short section from Ecclesiastes? Well, we need to remember the nature of man, how humans are naturally sinful, and as a result are tyrannical and oppressive. And when you give one person power of coercion over another, it's a monopoly on the use of force to make them do what they want them to do. And that power is very tempting and very addictive. And our founding fathers here in the United States recognized the truth of Ecclesiastes, that government bureaucracy is tyrannical, and freedom requires checks and balances. The best way to prevent injustice is to pit one ruler against another, that they might restrain each other. So a limited and restrained government is going to be the least likely to become tyrannical. So that is our passage of the day. And so I want to now spend the rest of our time, and hopefully we'll get through it all. If not, that's okay. Um, talking about some real-world writings on tyranny, nonfiction writings, if you will. So last time we looked at several of some of the key uh, dystopian novels that talk about tyranny and oppression. And this week, I want to look at some of the nonfiction, some of the writings of men like Alexis de Tocqueville, C.S. Lewis, R.J. Rushduni, um, and see what they had to say about despotism and tyranny in a democratic society. So I kind of want to do that one also in chronological order. So what I, would, what I want to read is one section from a book written by Alexis de Tocqueville called Democracy in America. Now, Tocqueville, very briefly, he is a Frenchman. He lived through the French Revolution, and he visited the United States in the 1820s, 1830s, roughly around there, and toured all the colonies. And he wanted to learn about American democracy and some of the differences between the American version of a democratic republic compared to the French version, what happened in France. So his great work that he produced is called Democracy in America, and it's multiple volumes. Uh, if you have a PDF format of it, it's over a thousand pages long. So it's quite amazing that someone uh, before the era of you know, modern typewriting and computer processing uh, was able to write such a large work in his life. But it's a wonderful work. It covers so many different topics. Uh, the family, religion, local government, state government, federal government, everything. But there's one section towards the end where he talks about what despotism would look like in a democratic nation as opposed to a monarchy or an autocracy that would be found in, in Europe. So I'm just going to read not the entire chapter, although the entire chapter is worth reading for certain. And I'm just going to make a few comments as we go through. So he begins in this chapter by comparing what despotism in, let's say, the Roman Empire looked like, as opposed to what it might look like in a democratic society. So here's what he says. We see that in the time of the greatest power of the Caesars, 
the different peoples who inhabited the Roman world had still kept diverse customs and mores. Although subjected to the same monarch, most of the provinces were administered separately. They were full of powerful and active municipalities. And although all the government of the empire was concentrated in the hands of the emperor alone, and although he remained always, as needed, the arbiter of all things, the details of social life and of individual existence ordinarily escaped his control. So essentially here what he's saying, and he goes on to talk about how even a tyrannical emperor was really limited in what he could do, who he could affect. It was a small circle of people that he could really oppress, and it was very limited, mostly because he was just so dependent upon governors and magistrates all across the empire, and he could not administer the kind of control that you might have in a modern state. He talks about the abuse of power, just it didn't really arbitrarily take away a citizen's property or life. It was limited in very select matters. So here's what he says now about despotism in a democracy. He says, it seems that if despotism came to be established among the democratic nations of today, it would have other characteristics. It would be more extensive and milder, and it would degrade men without tormenting them. He goes on to say, democratic governments will be able to become violent and even cruel in certain moments of great agitation and great dangers, but these crises will be rare and passing. So then, with that framework in mind, he explains him, his thought process a little bit further here. Here's what he says. I want to imagine under what new features despotism could present itself to the world. I see an innumerable crowd of similar and equal men who spin around restlessly in order to gain small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Each one of them withdrawn apart, is like a stranger to the destiny of all the others. His children and his particular friends form for him the entire human species. As for the remainder of his fellow citizens, he is next to them, but he does not see them. He touches them without feeling them. He exists only in himself and for himself alone. And if he still has a family, you can say that he at least he no longer has a country. I'm going to stop there for one second, just comment that Tocqueville is pointing out here, he envisions a world of individuals, extreme individuals that are really only focused on themselves. And they're all equal, per se, and they run around trying to satisfy themselves, maximize their pleasure. And their circle is very small. It's just them and maybe their immediate family, if they have a family, okay? Because so, you know, not that's that's a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of work to have a family. It's better just be on your own to be selfish. And this is this is the community that he envisions—a very selfish um, and individualistic community. And here's what happens after that. He says, above those men arises an immense and tutelary power that alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyment and of looking after their fate. It is absolute, detailed, regular, far-sighted, and mild. It would resemble paternal power if, like it, it had as a goal to prepare men for manhood, but on the contrary, it seeks only to fix them irrevocably in childhood. 
It likes the citizens to enjoy themselves, provided that they think only about enjoying themselves. It works willingly for their happiness, but it wants to be the unique agent for it and the sole arbiter. It attends to their security, provides for their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their principal affairs, directs their industry, settles their estates, divides their inheritances. How can it not remove entirely from them the trouble to think and the difficulty of living? So I'll stop there again. He points out, all right, you have all these individuals that are only focused on self-gratification. And what's going to hold them all together is this very powerful state that is in charge of everything, is going to make sure that they're happy and full of enjoyment, um, and it's very detailed. And it keeps people in an immature state of childhood. They get to play a little bit. They can sometimes watch TV and play video games and and you know have some good food and snacks. And they can they can do things, but beyond that, it's all in the hands of the government. The government handles all of the other details. It takes care of them completely and to the point that they don't even have to think. So this is the, the vision that Tocqueville is, is painting for us almost 200 years ago, by the way, of what a despotic democratic government would look like. But here's how, here's how it does it. He says, after having thus taken each individual one by one into its powerful hands and having molded him as it pleases, the sovereign power extends its arms over the entire society. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules, which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to go beyond the crowd. It does not break wills, but it softens them, bends them, and directs them. In certain moments of great passions and great dangers, the sovereign power becomes suddenly violent and arbitrary. Habitually, it is moderate, benevolent, regular, and humane. It rarely forces action, but it constantly opposes your acting. It does not destroy. It prevents birth. It does not tyrannize, it hinders, it represses, it enervates, it extinguishes, it stupefies. And finally, it reduces each nation to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. So that's a very interesting description that Tocqueville makes about this democratic despotic government of a bureaucratic nightmare. We talk about the bureaucratic red tape, the paperwork, going to the DMV, getting a permit, uh, zoning like all these small, complicated rules. And no matter how original you try to be and how vigorous you work, you can't get past it all. It's too much. And it doesn't really break your will. It just bends it and softens it. Um, and this government is not typically mean, although it can be. It can become suddenly violent and arbitrary. One might want to consider even the most recent COVID pandemic where um, it just became very arbitrary in a lot of its rules and not entirely violent, but but sometimes harsh in how it, how it handled things. But overall, it just constantly opposes what individuals are trying to do because it's micromanaging. And basically, it turns everyone into a flock of animals. 
and the government is the shepherd. So now Tocqueville goes on to describe what this great, powerful government does. He says this, I suppose that a democratic nation, after destroying within it all the secondary powers, establishes in its midst a very inquisitorial, very extensive, very centralized, very powerful executive power, that it confers on this power the right to conduct all the details of public affairs and to lead a part of private affairs, that it puts individuals in a strict and daily dependence on this power, but that it makes this power itself depend on an elected legislature, which, without really governing, traces the principal rules of the government. I want to stop there because that is a perfect explanation of what we have today. What we have today in what's called the deep state or administrative state, where you have all these agencies, EPA, CDC, IRS, numerous, numerous agencies that are mostly part of the executive branch of government. And it's this very centralized, powerful executive power, and it conducts all the details of public life and even some private affairs. And we as individuals are dependent upon all these agencies. Now, of course, this executive power, these agencies, they are dependent upon Congress. Congress has delegated its power to them and lets them do their thing, but we control Congress. And so there is still a tracing of the principal rules of government in a democratic society. But here, then, Tocqueville talks about how this is frustrating. Here's what he says. Our contemporaries are incessantly tormented by two hostile passions. They feel the need to be led and the desire to remain free. Unable to destroy either the one or the other of these opposite instincts, they work hard to satisfy both at the same time. They imagine a unique, tutelary, omnipotent power, but elected by the citizens. They combine centralization and sovereignty of the people. That gives them some relief. They console themselves about being in tutelage by thinking that they have chosen their tutors themselves. Each individual endures being bound because he sees that it is not a man or a class, but the people itself that holds the end of the chain. So here Tocqueville is talking about how the desire to be led and the desire to be free. We want to be controlled and we want everyone to do things for us. Uh, we don't want responsibility. So the best way to do that is to have um, a centralized, very sovereign, very powerful government, but still elected by the citizens. And we're okay with being enslaved and, and under bondage to a government because it's not one person or one class that has us, but it's the people that have us. We all have each other in kind of a way. And Tocqueville continues in describing what the result of this kind of a setup would be. He says, it is in fact difficult to imagine how men who have entirely given up the habit of directing themselves could succeed in choosing well those who should lead them. And it cannot be believed that a liberal, energetic, and wise government can ever come out of the votes of a people of servants. A constitution that would be republican at the head and ultra-monarchical in all the other parts has always seemed to me an ephemeral monster 
the vices of those who govern, and the imbecility of the governed, would not take long to lead them to ruin, and the people, tired of its representatives and of itself, would create freer institutions, or would soon return to stretching out at the feet of a single master. Now, I want to stop there because that is powerful. But just think for a second what Tocqueville is saying here. Uh, First of all, he's describing how he can't imagine a people that have given up governing themselves and they're just giving it over to an administrative elite uh, state, um, how they could even succeed in choosing good rulers. I mean, how are they going to be able to pick wise rulers if they themselves can't even can't even govern themselves? So the result's not going to be good, is what he's saying, is that the result will be that you're going to have this monster of a government that is, in its constitution, Republican. There's still elections, but in how it functions, it's ultra-monarchical. There's unelected people who wield immense power in these agencies that can control the the people and the vices of those who govern. So their temptations and their sins, there's a lack of accountability, a lack of checks and balances. And since the people have become ignorant, he uses the word imbecile, um, but essentially they've given up their self-governing ability and their maturity, their functioning like little children in a sense. He says it would not take long for this to result in ruin. And the people would get tired of it, tired of this very oppressive situation. And either, either they would gain maturity and start creating more free institutions, or they would turn to a single ruler, some kind of Napoleon, some kind of Hitler or despotic ruler. So that is what we read from Tocqueville. And again, it's, it's quite prophetic in many ways. And I think that what what we're seeing today in the United States is almost a cut and paste of what he described would happen in a despotic democracy uh, 200 years earlier. Absolutely uh, frightening in a way. But now I want to read to you a section from C.S. Lewis. This is the 1920s and 30s, early 20th century. Um, And he was an English writer and thinker, and he wrote the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. But in this essay, God in the Dock, he writes uh, in one of the sections about tyranny. And here's what he says about tyranny. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. Their very kindness stings with intolerable insult to be cured against one's will and cured of state's which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on a level with those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. So Lewis here is describing the kind of tyranny that we really do see today, where the elites and the administrative state 
they claim that they know what's best for us and they're going to take care of us and they're doing things for our good. And that's what they say, right? But that ultimately is more oppressive. And as Lewis points out, it would be better to live under a robber baron because even though he can be cruel, okay, he's only in it for just himself and just a few things. And if you give him what he wants, he leaves you alone. And sometimes his cruelty may sleep. But those who are constantly seeking our benefit, our good, to treat us like animals and children and imbeciles, um, they never stop. It never ends. They, they are never s- satisfied. Um, and, they, and their cruelty never sleeps. Okay, but And they do it because they actually think they're doing the right thing. They think that they're doing good, but they're not. They're actually harming us. But it's okay because we don't know any. We don't know any better. He then goes on to talk about this quote-unquote justice that and this mercy that the state uh, is going to administer. He says this, this means that you start being kind to people before you have considered their rights and then force upon them some supposed kindnesses which no one but you will recognize as kindnesses and which the recipient will feel as abominable cruelties. You have overshot the mark. Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox. So this very paternal, maternal, government, um, pushing kindness, just wanting to be kind to everyone, and even to those who are engaged in criminal behavior, you know, know, those in prison, and we don't want to be unkind to people. That's the real big focus is kindness, even more than, than their rights, and you're forcing a kind of kindness, and everyone needs to be tolerant and kind of everybody else, and it results in cruelty, and that's the paradox that Lewis is pointing out here, that if all you have is mercy and there's no such thing as justice, that mercy becomes more and more unmerciful. It becomes a form of cruelty. So that uh, is just a few statements I wanted to read from C.S. Lewis. So the next person I wanted to read from is a Christian theologian and philosopher, uh, R.J. Rushduni, who lived after Lewis um, here in the United States. And he wrote a multiple volume series called The Institutes of Biblical Law. And in his chapter on the third commandment, so he goes through all the commandments and sees how they would apply to a modern nation today. Here's what he says about the new modern kind of tyranny and despotism. He says, if the law is positive in its function, and if the health of the people is the highest law, then the state has total jurisdiction to compel the total health of the people. The immediate consequence is a double penalty on the people. First, an omnicompetent state is posited and a totalitarian state results. Everything becomes a part of the state's jurisdiction because everything can potentially contribute to the health or the destruction of the people. Because the law is unlimited, the state is unlimited. It becomes the business of the state not to control evil, but to control all men. Basic to every totalitarian regime is a positive concept of the function 
of law. This means, second, that no area of liberty can exist for man. There is then no area of things indifferent, of actions, concerns, and thoughts, which the state cannot govern in the name of public health. To assume an all-competent state is to assume an incompetent people. The state then becomes a nursemaid to a citizenry whose basic character is childish and immature. The theory that law must have a positive function assumes that the people are essentially childish. And so we see here the same theme is being described, and this book was written in the 1970s, this idea of this state that's becoming a nursemaid to all the people, and the idea that the people are childish and immature, and that everything's about their health and what's good for them. And since everything is about health, the government's in charge of everything. There's no area in which it cannot say something or enforce something. And that's the kind of totalitarianism that we see growing in our nation today. Now, Rushduni goes a little further in this book and describes the spiritual or religious or idolatrous motivations behind this. Why is it that this happens um, in a state or in a state without God? And here's what he says. He quotes a Soviet politician, and here's what the Soviet says about their goal in forming the Marxist utopia. He says, only when everyone is fully conscious of what it means to be a Soviet citizen will there be no crime. There is no such thing as human nature. Man is the product of his surroundings, of the social and economic system which molds him. Change the mold, and you change the man. And that is what we are doing. You know the church used to talk loud and long about original sin. It was a good way to keep the masses in their miserable places, but we junked that idea long ago. We are doing something. We are doing a great deal about removing the artificial societal arrangements that foster crime. And this is where I think that socialism shows its greatest advantage over capitalism. You see, man is essentially good. Only private property and everything he learned from it corrupted him. We are restoring his goodness and at the same time making him infinitely richer in every way. Don't you see the glory in that? So that is a Soviet politician being quoted there by Rushduni, and I think that highlights it very well. The idea that nothing is really wrong with man, that man is inherently good, and that he can be molded by changing his environment and his surroundings and his economic state. Well, if that's the case, then you can create utopia by simply rearranging the pieces, rearranging the furniture, and redistributing the wealth. And if you create the perfect combination and you do things right and set all the pieces up properly, theoretically, you could create a utopian state. And that's all for the good of the people. That's for the good of society. And so why not do that? And that's what Rushduni points out is the spiritual movement behind this totalitarian um, tendency in government. Everyone thinks that they can make the world better, but if they are divorced from God, if they are not 
thinking in submission to God than they are thinking in terms of a false god and a kind of power of Babel where they wanted to make a utopia completely devoid of any reference to God. And such a utopia can't happen. And really what it ends up being is a hell on earth. So these three men I wanted to share, and there's many others that speak very similarly in their writings, but I just found these three men to be particularly cogent, clear, and prophetic in what they saw as the threat to Western constitutional republics and democracies. And so I ask that you consider these things. Think about these things and how accurate these men were before their time, particularly Tocqueville, 200 years earlier, just hitting the mark on exactly what we're seeing today. And I'm not saying that on today's episode we're going to solve the problem and find the solution, but it's definitely something we should consider. How do we deal with this ephemeral monster of an ultra-monarchical administrative state where the people, we, are being treated as immature, childish, imbecile animals and everything's being done for our good uh, by those who claim to know better than we do. And they just won't leave us alone. Well, we have to think about how to respond to that. And perhaps that's a discussion for another time. So thank you for tuning in on today's episode. Please, if you have any comments, questions, or any other topics you would like me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the show with a friend, coworker, family member, All the reviews are very helpful. Thumbs up, stars, everything like that. And next time we will continue our series on tyranny. And until then, take care and God bless.